This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. For the past six episodes, we've been talking about race at work as part of our season on how to build a more equitable workplace. Today, we're going to be switching gears a little bit to focus on gender at work. Of course, identity is intersectional, so these issues of gender are not mutually exclusive and are certainly compounded by issues of race. In the same way that when we talk about LGBTQ plus issues in the workplace, it's impossible not to discuss gender as well. But as with the race episodes, our lens into making a better workplace for the next six weeks will be gender. So we're going to start by breaking down the gender pay gap. This is such a big, complicated topic that we could spend the whole season on just this one issue. So before we get into our expert interview on where we are now, I'm going to spend a few minutes on the incredibly disappointing history of the gender pay gap and try to fit in 100 years of unequal pay in about five minutes. So here we go. So women have been getting paid less than men for as long as women have been doing paid work at all. One of the first recorded occurrences of the pay gap was during the Civil War when the Secretary of Treasury hired women to cut and trim currency for about half of what men doing the exact same job were earning. There was some outcry about it even at that time, a letter to the editor of the New York Times in 1869, but surprisingly, nothing changed. Throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s, unequal pay got kind of codified by systematically barring women from certain occupations. Part of that argument was that it was simply too tempting for men to work with women. And so this shut women out of many types of jobs. And those jobs that were the ones that were only held by men ended up paying better wages. This effectively ushered in the concept of occupational sorting, which dictated that women could only hold certain jobs. Think nurse, teacher. That has stubbornly persisted to this day. And this is where a whole class of so-called pink collar jobs that pay less. There was a brief respite in the inequality during both world wars when the United States Employment Service encouraged women to take over some jobs such as manufacturing that they were previously barred from so that the men could go to war. Since they were doing the same work, the National War Labor Board argued in favor of paying them the same wages. But this wasn't altruistic. The real reason behind the equality was that it was a way to ensure that when men returned from their tour of duty, they could resume those same jobs at that same pay. An attempt at equality didn't happen again until the 1960s and 70s when the Equal Pay Law in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. Then, in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court banned sex-segregated help-wanted advertising. While these were all important markers of recognition and progress, the practice of unequal pay has endured for many reasons, including the lack of transparency on pay at companies to begin with. 
Then in 2009, President Obama signed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Restoration Act, which allows victims, usually women, of pay discrimination to file a complaint with the government against their employer within 180 days of their last paycheck. President Obama also proposed the Paycheck Fairness Act, which requires companies with 100 or more employees to report their staff's pay broken down by race, gender, and ethnicity to the EEOC. The effort was stymied during the Trump administration, but the EEOC is back on track to start collecting data this month. But still, the gender pay gap persists. White women are paid an average of 81 cents for every dollar a white man makes, while black women are paid an average of 63 cents for every dollar a white man makes. And we aren't much closer to closing this gap than we were when our grandmothers were shut out of their well-paying wartime jobs. The most optimistic estimates suggest it will take 40 years to close the gap between white men and women, and much longer for women of color, while others place that estimate at a hundred years or more. Joining me to talk about the current state of the gender pay gap and how we address this inequity going forward is Maria Colacurcio. Maria is the CEO of Cindio, an HR analytics company focused on promoting fairness in the workplace. Maria, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So the gender pay gap is such a complex issue. Can you break down as we start, just break down kind of some of the factors that go into it? Absolutely. It is complex. And that's because it covers a couple of different topics that most people aren't aware of. So when the media talks about the pay gap or pay equity, they're actually two different things. To give you a little bit of background, in the nearly 60 years since the Equal Pay Act was signed into legislation, if you can believe this, that was 1963, we still have a pay gap issue in the U.S. And even worse than that, the World Economic Forum estimates it will take 257 years from now to close the gender pay gap. And it's more than a gender pay gap. It really is a racial gap, too. So the two issues that often get confused that I referred to earlier, one is the pay gap and one is pay equity. So the pay gap is a comparison of earning between two groups. So most of the time when you see this in the news, they're talking about men and women. The gap is bigger because men tend to be in higher paying or higher level jobs than women. So that's the pay gap. Think about it as the average or the distribution of men and women or white versus non-white in an enterprise or a company. Pay equity compares groups in similar jobs. So both things are an issue. If you think about pay equity, that's where we get the term equal pay for equal work. So how are people being paid that are doing similar work? That's pay equity. Pay gap is distribution. So where are people leveled in an organization? We tend to pay more for jobs that men do. And even when men and women are in the same roles, we tend to pay groups of men more than women. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's, you know, we've covered a lot of these issues in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, you've laid out kind of the the broad strokes of it. And then, you know, as an example, if you get into something like, you know, what's commonly called pink collar work, right? So if you're saying that the pay gap is that more women are in lower paying fields like teaching and nursing, and those are called, you know, like colloquially called pink collar jobs. But what you're saying about equity is that even when, and we've, we've, you know, covered this, even when men enter a field like nursing or teaching, they still end up getting paid more than women. Is that, is that kind of a good example? 
You're exactly right. And I think one of the most troubling things about this topic, Kate, is Cornell did a study, which was the biggest study of the labor force since the 1950s. And what they found, exactly to your point, is that as women entered more lucrative paying fields, the pay actually dropped. Mm. So you think about the converse of that, which is something you, you reference, which is nursing. So nursing is a predominantly female field, but male nurses tend to make on average about $6,000 more per year than women. If you look at something like computer engineering, well, women really started out in that field during World War II when it was very basic administrative computer tasks. As they flowed out of that field and men flowed in, it became a much more higher paying field. And what happens is as women flow into a career field, the pay actually drops. So I think the question is, do we value women's work less? Do we actually value women's work less? Because Otherwise, why would the pay in an entire field drop as women enter that field? Parks and Rec is another great example. Used Mm -hmm. to be predominantly men doing Parks and Rec type work. As women entered the field, it just became less valued. I feel like it's, you know, that's a great point. Do we value women's work less? And, you know, a a kind of a a reaction seems like, yes, it it seems like it. But I also feel like it, it seems like a little bit that that employers rather unconsciously or not feel like they can get away with paying women less. And that kind of goes hand in glove into one of the other um, reasons that's usually pointed to for the pay gap, right? Which is women in negotiation and negotiating salaries and being offered uh, a lower money. And I know, for example, New York and some other states in in recent years have passed laws about um, not asking about your start or your salary history when you are offered a job, because if you've historically been paid less, then you will be offered less. But can you talk a little bit about how that works in starting offers and pay and women in negotiation versus men in negotiation around salaries? So, Kate, you're you're hitting right the nail on the head. Do you know what the single most significant factor in any pay analysis is the most significant? No. Is it if you're a man or a woman? No, it's, <laughs> you, you you nailed it. So the most significant factor in any pay analysis is starting pay. Mm-hmm. It's not education. It's not experience. It's not location and so on. It is that men and women or white versus minority. Again, remember, let's keep in mind, this is a racial and a gender problem. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They start in different places. And once you start at a different place, you have to outperform. Let's say we're talking about women and men. Let's bring it back to that comparison. A woman would have to outperform a man for many years just to catch up. Starting pay is the original sin that has to be a focus. Quote, start low, stay low is what we kind of call this in our industry. And it's it's really important, as you say. I mean, it it makes sense. You know, obviously, if you start, you know, $20,000 lower than every subsequent job. Even if you get a raise, you're still behind. You're still behind. You're still behind. Can you talk a little bit though about the, you know, so, so the, the, the answer to that usually is like, well, men negotiate and women don't negotiate. There's so much bias baked into negotiation around salary. Can you talk to uh, talk a little bit about what happens when women try to negotiate versus when men try to negotiate salaries? Yeah. And and here's the thing about the negotiation topic. Personally, I think it's a huge cop out. 
I think, yes, it's great for women to work on their skills of negotiation. It's great for minorities to do the same. But at the end of the day, look at the other side of the research, which is what happens when a woman or specifically a black woman negotiates? How is she perceived? She is perceived as aggressive. She's perceived less positively as her male counterpart who is negotiating. So I think it's really important that companies take accountability for making sure they are looking at data and doing pay equity analyses to ensure that they are not paying someone unfairly because of gender or race. That is the company's accountability. So when the company takes that accountability and then pushes it onto the employee to say, well, you're just not negotiating well, mm-hmm. it's, it's a complete cop-out. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, and we get at that a lot when we talk about bias around hiring decisions in general, but I think you, you're exactly right. There's a lot of baked in bias when women try to negotiate or when women of color, especially try to negotiate how they're perceived versus, you know, how a man is perceived. And there's been numerous stories of this. You know, there's, there was a recent story even where a woman said that she tried to negotiate her starting pay and the job offer was rescinded after she like, how dare you basically, obviously not on, well, you didn't do it right. Or you, you need to do it more that, as you say, that's a total cop out. The last thing I would say on that is that men are judged based on potential Mm. and women are judged based on past accomplishments and research shows this. It means when you're negotiating pay, there's a difference when each one asks for more women have to prove they're worth it. And men don't. Men just have to prove that they are potentially worth it. See, and that's really interesting, too, because that kind of touches on, I think, you know, another thing that we've covered about why pay can end up differing over the lifespan of a career for men and women. And it's the the phenomenon of the daddy bonus and the uh, motherhood tax. So when women become mothers or even have the potential to, you you may become a mother, they're uh, perceived as less dedicated to their jobs, right? And like, you're probably going to take time off. You're probably going to like not be as dedicated, whether or not that's accurate. And, you know, we've written about kind of the legacy of like when a man becomes a father, oh, well, you have to provide for your family. You're going to be more dedicated, even though these are such antiquated notions. How how have you seen that kind of fatherhood bonus and motherhood tax play out? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And it is accurate. It absolutely is accurate. And I, you know, women disproportionately take off more time for parental leave, Mm -hmm. which is true. But that doesn't explain the perception. I mean, this perception is amongst men and women equally. They see their counterparts that are working parents who are women as less dedicated to their work, which is pretty crazy if you bring it back to the contextual environment that we're in right now, which is COVID. Because of these perceptions, female and minority parents, single parents, parents in relationships are by and far stepping away from the workforce. And I think part of it is because of that perception. So they're having to balance all of these things, realizing that in trying to balance the fact that they have kids at home and being a woman, they're going to be perceived as less dedicated to their work. And that's part of this conversation around why are women, women dropping out of the workforce? Part of it is because they're just flat out overwhelmed. They can't do it all. But the other piece is because they feel like with these negative perceptions of parenting and work, they're never going to be able to live up to their potential or what they're supposed to be, their expectations at work. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that we've, we've also covered a lot and something that I wanted to ask you about. And it it kind of, you know, goes along with the 
the cost of childcare. You know, we've written a lot about how expensive childcare is and when families have to make tough decisions where the childcare costs more than your take-home salary, it's almost always the woman who then gives up her job because her job, surprise, surprise, almost always is paid less than if she's a heterosexual in a heterosexual couple than her husband's. And, you know, as, as you touched on the, as a result of the pandemic, over 2 million women have left the the workforce in just this past year. Can you break down? I think we've, we've really touched on the why of that, but can you break down what kind of impact that's going to have on women's careers and kind of the, their future earnings too? Yeah, of course. I mean, and you're, you're right. Without significant action, there's a real danger that female labor force participation could face its steepest sustained decline since World War II. And that's, that's massive. And not only that, we've been incrementally making progress against the pay gap and against pay inequity. And all of that is rapidly eroding before our eyes. So I think there's two things to think about in that. And the pandemic has not just upended how we work in general. There's tons of articles about that, right? Remote work, productivity, how are we all working in remote locations? But it's also changed how we work. And very early in the pandemic, we at Cindio released a survey and we looked at a whole bunch of parents who were working parents. And we asked questions about the difference in caregiving responsibilities, how they were being shared, their impact on work. And what we found was really interesting in that men were leaning into their jobs and working more. And women were spending way more time managing homeschooling, managing parenting duties, managing housework, all of the things that they were already doing, they were doing more of while men were working more. So I think it's just, we have to think about not only the here and now and what's happening during a pandemic, but now that it's been a year, how are those habits setting in and how are they going to change or not, assuming this remote work phase continues? And don't get me wrong, Remote work is a huge boon for women on the flexibility side. Women have been asking for this. It helps them. It it causes them to be able to be more productive in many ways. But from a COVID perspective, it's interesting to think about what habits are being formed for something that we thought was going to last three weeks and has lasted a year. Yeah, it's it's so true. And, you know, even down to the smallest thing, like it has been covered that, you know, and when both a man and a woman are working from home, by and large, the man is the one that has a dedicated room or office space. And the woman is the one who's working at the kitchen counter and therefore being pulled in a million different directions. I want to back up a little bit here because this is like one of my pet peeves. So at Fast Company, we've been covering issues around race and gender and inequality in all of its forms for many, many, many years. And whenever we write one of these articles, by and large, we don't get a lot of pushback on on a lot of the different topics except for pay gap. Every single time, without fail, when we read about pay gap, we always get several responses, and they're almost always for men, but saying that the pay gap doesn't exist. That's Well, that's just, it's just not true. Why do you think it's so hard for people to believe this thing? You know, there's so much data around it doesn't exist. It's interesting that you asked me this only because my 13-year-old daughter just had to do a persuasive speech at school. (laughs) 
And she chose to address this topic. So I call them, and and I don't know where I got this from. I probably picked it up from someone else and I don't want to take originality credit, but we call them the pay gap truthers. Mm -hmm. So the truthers, there's no shortage of cynics when it comes to the view that men and women are paid differently, even when they're producing work that's equal in both quality and impact. And it's kind of like the pipeline argument. Right. So the theory goes that men choose careers such as investment banking and engineering, and women choose professions like nursing and teaching with pay rates that have been set lower by the natural forces of supply and demand. And I would ask there, I would pause and I would say, or perhaps because of the long history of putting less value on women's work, like what we talked about before. But even thinking about that this pipeline explanation is viable, like how do we rationalize the state of the nursing industry? Like what we talked about a few minutes ago, there you know, were only 300,000 nurses in a Kaiser study that identified as male, but they were paid more. And that's just 9% of that particular workforce of that function. So I think truthers, they confuse pay gap and pay equity, the two things we were talking about before. And people get defensive because they view it as a threat to their own value. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is this very strange comment, which we hear a lot from truthers, and I'm sure you've seen it in comments on your blogs and your posts, where they state that, well, when you control for everything, like education and tenure and the type of job and time and role, the gap is really only 2%. It's not this huge, you know, nine or 10% that you guys are saying, it's only 2%. So what they're saying though, break that down. They're saying when you control for education, tenure, time and role experience, whatever the things are, the gap is only 2%. So what you're saying, Truther, is that I should accept that I'm going to get paid 2% less because I'm female? You're basically telling me that, of course, there's a problem. The problem isn't as big as what I'm saying it is. And so I should just sit down and deal with it. Mm -hmm. So it's a very strange response that you hear all the time. When you control for all these things, it's actually really small. It's really small, but you're still paying me less just because of my gender. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So, you know, and you touched on this a little bit before, and I want to come back to it. You know, something that we always keep in mind when we talk about issues of equality are how intersectional they are. And a lot of times when we talk about pay gap or the, the top line talk about pay gap is the gap between white women and white men. But white women experience the pay gap so differently than women of color, specifically than black women in particular. Can you give us a sense of how and why women of color experience the gender pay gap so differently and why the chasm between what black women, for example, get paid is so much bigger? Sure. And as part of that, so, so first of all, intersectionality, it's the same issues, but you're compounding them now because you're adding race on top of gender. And I think a really good example of this is equal pay day. Mm -hmm. It really should be equal pay season because it seems like every month we have some dubious celebration of another group's equal pay day and it's really well-intentioned. And so I'm not slamming that at all, but I wonder if it dilutes the goal that we should have an equal pay day for all of January 1 
versus March 24th is White Women's Equal Pay Day. It kicks off the season of Equal Pay Days with each person coming consecutively after. Racial, the racial pay gap has had devastating impacts along with what we call the opportunity gap, which is that inability to have opportunities to move up to a higher paying job. It's a huge contributor to the racial wealth gap. So I think, I think there are all these things to keep into account, but at its core, it's really just compounding an issue because you're, you're locking race on top of gender. Yeah. And just, and just for listeners who aren't familiar with what equal pay day is, it's the symbolic day into the year that a woman must work to er work for free to earn what a man earns in that year. So for white women, it's usually around the beginning of April. So it's like 70 ish days into the year. So 70 days you work for free because you make 70 cents on the dollar. And for black women, for example, it's usually in August because you have to work you know, 200 and something days to make the, you know, what a man makes in, in a year. Right. Exactly. So this is not a new problem as we've, we've talked about and, you know, kind of much in the way that we routinely hear companies make promises to address their diversity issues in their company. We hear, you know, especially in the month of March, because it's the women's history month and it's the, it's, you know, the month of the year that everybody acknowledges that, you know, women exist, I guess we hear declarations that, you know, companies are going to address their gender pay gap, but there just seems to be such limited progress on it. What has been kind of the standard approach to solutions that companies take when they're like, we're going to address our, our gender pay gap and why do those solutions fall so short? Great question. And something, as you can imagine, I love talking about controversially, the reason that pay equity efforts fail is that for the most part, pay equity in companies is run by the lawyers. So in other words, fair pay is viewed through a lens of risk mitigation, not fairness or brand enhancement or employee engagement or a differentiator in the way our workplace functions as a fair place. And as long as that continues, it will live in the shadows. It will die in darkness. It will stay behind attorney-client privilege and continue to be something that is about risk and about litigation and not about fairness, transparency, and accountability. Mm. So it's all, so you're saying like a lot of companies approach it where it's like, we don't want to get sued. What's the bare minimum that we need to do? I mean, part of the reason, right, why, why pay is so difficult to, to equalize is it's never talked about. And, you know, we've we've covered somewhat and I'd love to hear what you think about the idea of salary transparency at companies and if that's a solution to to help end the pay gap. So transparency is not getting to know what others earn. It is. I know my range. I know where I am within the range. And I know that the company examines pay equity. I know they're fixing problems as they find them. And, and here's the interesting thing. Nobody expects perfection. So companies that are communicating about what they're doing to ensure issues they found don't happen again are the ones that are experiencing the most loyalty, devotion, and engagement and productivity, by the way, from their employees. Because they're saying to their employees, we're going to look at this. We're going to find something. We're going to fix what we find. And then we're committing to stay on top of it over time. And that's the beauty of accountability and transparency and why I love seeing our customers 
say, we're going to go public. We're going to tell people we're doing this because what happens when you go public, when you tell employees, we're looking at this, or we did this once you better believe you're on the hook to do it again, because no employee is going to be satisfied with you looked at this three years ago, and then you haven't looked at it since. So I think that's, that's the turn of phrase with transparency. It doesn't have to mean zero to a hundred, like cloak and dagger to put everyone's salaries on the wall. It's, it's really about why am I paid what I'm paid and where am I in the range? And are you committing to say that you're looking at this? So that's interesting. I, I think a lot of companies will hear that, will hear, oh, well, the, one of the solutions to, to a pay gap is transparency and immediately say, I don't want to do that. I don't want everybody knowing what I make or what each other make that's going to you know cause so much tension. And there's so many factors that go into what somebody makes, you know, like tenure, like experience, you know, those sorts of things. But, but you're saying that can be kind of worked around by having a salary range for a a job. So say, you know, this title makes between 50 and $70,000. And you know that everybody with that title makes that amount of money and you're in that range and you trust that your company will pay you fairly within that range because they have committed to evaluate it based on a certain what set of criteria or like how how transparent should they be about what that process is of evaluating it because i think you're kind of getting at it as if you your company says oh we're looking at it trust us we're going to make sure it's fair you know how how do they you know that they really are what what those levels are Great question. And something a lot of companies are grappling with as they figure out how transparent we want to be, how much do we want to expose, how sophisticated do we want to get in terms of how we're doing the process. I think transparency is knowing how you set pay and employees knowing where they are in that range, not sort of tell me what that guy makes. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know his exact salary. I want to know what your pay policies are. And I think being able to stand up in front of your employees and say, We've done analytics around our pay policies. And guess what? We're not paid for performance, but we're going to figure out what we are and we're going to fix it and have pay policies that make sense and that actually are data-driven and do what they say they're supposed to do. And so it's that kind of transparency for employees because guess what? You may say that in your employee handbook or you may tell employees that, but every single one of your employees knows that you don't pay based on education because they've talked to Lori and they know she has a PhD and they've seen Bob come in with his bachelor's and they know, generally speaking, where people are at. And nature abhors a vacuum. So when companies decide not to say anything, employees will fill the void with information. Mm-hmm. So if you're a leader, get ahead of it. Get ahead of those crowdsourced spreadsheets which are, again, well-intentioned by the employees, but they miss a lot of things. So first of all, people lie like crazy on those things. Number two, people don't understand why they're paid what they're paid. So they may see this massive gap, but they'll misinterpret it because they won't see that, again, Lori has a PhD and Bob has a bachelor's. They don't know why the company is paying what it's paying. So they'll, they'll, make, the wrong, they'll, they'll make the wrong conclusions from that information. So... It's really important for leaders to get ahead of it because Google Doc activism is a very real thing today. And I mean, I think that it's good, too, because it challenges hiring managers and, you know, leaders and managers to answer to themselves why somebody is paid what they are. I think a lot of pay offers go into like, 
oh, well, you know, the the type of school you went to an Ivy League school or, you know, does that really matter to this particular job? Like, does it really matter that if you both have bachelor's degrees, what school the bachelor's degree came from? Or, oh, I know this person from a network or they worked at this brand name place before or I just, you know, they negotiated well or they asked for it or something. All these kind of nebulous things that are not quantifiable in these ways that lead to these, you know, giant chasms. And as you say, like lead to some really horrible revelations for people when they say, I've got seven years more experience than this person who works under me, but they get paid more. Like what the hell is going on? And, you know, what a horrible state of affairs that is for your business. And as you say, like for your morale, for your productivity, for your turnover rates, like somebody who finds that out is not going to be loyal to the company, you know? It's, it's so true. And I think as a manager or as a leader, the question is, if everyone on your team knew what others made, are you comfortable explaining why he earns X and she earns Y? And if the answer is yes, great. But often that question terrifies managers because not only are they doing what you just stated in terms of that, like, well, he's a special snowflake. He went to this school or that school. They also don't document it. So half the time, you know, a year later, they don't even remember why, what their justifications were. They don't remember why and then can't communicate it. And I think on the flip side of this, Kate, which is really interesting and something I tell leaders all the time is that when you adjust a woman's pay and tell her you were paid unfairly because of gender, her takeaway often is not, oh my God, they screwed me over, lawsuit, call my lawyer. It's wow. They're taking this seriously. They're being transparent. They're telling me the truth. They're committing to change. Now, the lawyers, they hate this because they're all about not admitting that anything was wrong. Their stance is never apologize and never admit wrongdoing. But in contrast, I think leaders get it. I think leaders know that their people just want to be treated fairly. And and to me, this is table stakes for having a workplace that is committed to diversity, equity, and belonging. So you hear those phrases a lot, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. If you don't know how you're valuing your people, your people whom you say are your greatest asset, you haven't done the base foundational thing that's necessary to have a diverse and inclusive workplace. Yeah, I think, and that's a really important point of, I, you know, pointing out, not, not couching it in like, oh, we're raising your pay because of whatever, or he gets paid more because of this kind of nebulous thing, like call a spade a spade and say, we did wrong and we're fixing it because you know, if a woman is getting paid unfairly and she figures out that she's getting paid unfairly, it's total gaslighting to say, oh, well, no, it's something else. Like, I know what it is. Tell me what it is. Respect me. And I respect that you are trying to do better, you know? Exactly. Um, so we've talked a lot about, obviously, and and that should be our focus of what, you know, businesses can do, what managers can do. Let's I want to pull it back just for a second to to end it with on what can be done on a government level. You know, so you talked about the Equal Pay Act of uh, of the 60s. And I talked a little bit about some of these, you know, like more local laws about not asking about salary history. Is there anything that you would love to see on a government level policy wise that could help end the pay gap or narrow it? Yes. And I'll start with the short answer and then I'll give a little bit of background. So. The short answer is transparency and required reporting. 
Otherwise, this continues to live in the shadows. So require companies to affirm that they even conducted a pay equity analysis. There are major companies out there who haven't done even this, and they don't do this. So I think that is the short answer. The longer answer is that new state laws are coming into play that re- increase these reporting requirements. So you've got California, you've got Colorado, you had the EEOC component two a couple of years back. You've got the Biden-Harris, they're now putting together a council on gender equity. The EEOC is looking at collecting pay data again. There's large investment funds talking about an- analyzing gender equity as a measure of corporate health. So like NASDAQ, Goldman, they're considering rules to require board diversity now. And I think these are all important things, regardless how people feel about this. There's there's certainly debate, but these wins are not abating. They're gathering strength. And I think what I would caution our government to do is to be mindful of how companies work. So some of the reporting requirements that were put into place a couple of years ago were pretty heavy on companies in terms of how they group employees, how they pull the data. It was cumbersome. And it wasn't how companies work today in the context of having a human resources information system. So an HRIS and how you pull data out of that, how we group people in today's world. I think it's really important that as we proceed with some of these reporting requirements that we think about it and talk with business leaders about what would be the easiest for you, CHRO analyst leader, to pull this data from your system in a quick, easy way that makes sense. Not putting on business leaders really complex, cumbersome reporting requirements that just don't make good business sense. Yeah, I think that's a really good point of just, you know, yes, we need the accountability from the the businesses themselves, but we need that kind of government checks and balances. And and we can't, as you say, like make it too cumbersome or it's not going to happen. And the the government will not fix this. Leaders will fix this. CEOs, find out what your company did. Why would you allow lawyers to outsource this to a law firm? And and Women's Network, same question. I get asked to speak at Women's Networks all the time. And and the question is, ask your leaders, did we do this? What, What did you find? What will we do differently moving forward? And by the way, why are we still talking about this at a women's employee group instead of at our office meeting? Oh, 100%. Yeah, that's what, as soon as you said you get asked to speak to women's groups, that's, you know, that triggered something for me because whenever we talk about anything like this, childcare, pay, paid leave, anything, it's always framed as a women's issue. And I think like the gender pay gap gets framed so much as a women's issue. And it is a people's issue because- if you're if you if you're a heterosexual man and your wife is making twenty thousand dollars a year less than she makes, like that impacts your family. And if women are forever being paid less, that impacts the economy. It is a human issue. I, you know, like I want to shout it from the rooftops. Like, stop making this be a niche thing that like women are complaining and they want more money. Like, this is good for everybody. And it's yeah, it's not a women's issue. It's a leadership issue. And it's also, you know, the thing for me that you're, you're saying you've got that pet peeve around like the women's networks. I think for me is when we talk about men as allies, men are not allies. They need to be leaders on this and we need it to allow them to lead on this because guess what? My male leaders who are now empowered to put on their calendar, they're taking their kids to the dentist. That's a great thing for them too. So they want to be able to lead on this. 
They want to be able to take advantage of stepping in to have a bigger role in parenting their own kids. And we need to empower them to do that. So we have to get more on board with letting men lead in this space as well. Yeah, 100 percent. Maria Colacurcio is the CEO of Cindio. Thank you so much for having me. that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. I also really encourage you to go back and listen to our past episodes. This season so far, we've covered code switching, tone policing, and the history of racial bias training and so much more. And if you want to know more about the gender pay gap, check out the show notes for this episode where you'll find links to articles, including the history of the gender pay gap and the pay gap package that we did in 2019 called Short Changed. If you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Contributions on reporting on the history of the pay gap for this episode from Lydia Dishman. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen.